Sometimes people are surprised when they enter our prayer center, which is up on the third floor here at our worship center, to see a piece of a stained glass featuring an image of the resurrected Jesus, reaching out his nail-scarred hands. This image of the resurrected Jesus was actually our logo for many years here at the Life Christian Church. And this stained glass was placed on uh, the back wall of our stage at our old Harrison Avenue Worship Center facing the congregation for a long period of time. This logo served us well, mostly. I say mostly because there was an odd use of this image when we helped sponsor Powell Little League Baseball here in town, and this logo was put on the outfield fence of the Powell baseball field, this little field of dreams here in town. I went to see one of my sons play ball there one day, and there was Jesus standing uh, in left field appearing to say, here, hit it to me, hit it to me. That may sound sacrilegious, but I, I think Jesus, from what I know of him, would find it funny. But nonetheless, here's the backstory to that logo. Early in my tenure here, we named our church the Life Christian Church. We wanted to clearly identify as a Christian church, and we wanted to clearly identify with the resurrected Christ. I haven't said this for a long time. Jesus called himself the resurrection and the life. And we wanted to say very intentionally that we emphasize that this church is about Jesus as the life. So when you say the life Christian church, I hope you will think about the resurrected Jesus who said of himself after his resurrection, I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. See, the risen Jesus is the life at the life Christian church. So though in time we updated our logo, we've never changed our focus on the resurrected, alive now and forever, Jesus Christ. Now here's part of why I think it's important to say this. I believe, and, and I know that a lot of respected theologians concur, that there is not enough focus and centering around the resurrected Jesus. For instance, and I want to be careful how I say this, but some well-meaning branches of the Christian family focus on images like the crucifix, the cross with Jesus dying on it. Now, I don't believe, of course, this is inherently wrong. In fact, when you understand the glory of the cross, it's beautiful. But I do believe that the emphasis is mistakenly incomplete. Jesus is not in a perpetual state of death. His dying, as essential as it was, lasted but a few hours. He was in the state of being, of death, only three days. The larger point was that he lived before the beginning of time he lived on this planet for 33 years as the incarnate Son of God and that he died, but just three days later, he was raised from death to life and his life stretches on from now to forever. See, his dying and entering death 
was both an outrageous act of love and a necessary evil. It was a means to an end. And the end is the same as it was in the beginning. The end was and ever is life. The life that he has in himself and the life that he wants to give to anybody who will believe in him. As John said, as he finished writing his gospel, the last verse of the gospel of John, John said, what has been written down in this book about Jesus has been written that you will be believers that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you can have the life that is as present as the simple invocation of his name. So I want to strongly suggest to us that we focus on his life and our life in him. The great Dallas Willard, the uh, theologian, philosopher, former chair of the uh, philosophy department at the University of Southern California, wrote this. He said, the resurrection, not the death of Christ, was the central fact in the gospel of the early believers. The resurrection validated the reality and the indestructibility of what Jesus had preached and exemplified before his death. The fact that Jesus was not dead after all and that when we die, we won't stay dead is what made the resurrection earth-shaking, transforming, good news. With all this clearly in view, it becomes understandable why the simple and holy adequate word for salvation in the New Testament is life. Enjoyed reading over the last several weeks the work of uh, a great scholar named Scott McKnight. And McKnight uh, referred to a very popular word in Christian theology called cruciformity. It's a very important word, cruciformity. Uh, he said, instead of cruciformity, we might should use Christoformity. The former term means formed into the cross, which is important and beautiful, of course. But the Christian formation entails not just formed to the cross, but the cross and resurrection. We must be focused on the life of Jesus. And when we think of the gospel, which I intend by God's grace to preach a lot about over the next few weeks. When we think of the gospel, we should sandwich life around death. The gospel, as I'll define it in coming weeks, is the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. The life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. Notice, three-fourths of that story is about his life, which he has always had except for a three-day period where he entered death. But the rest of the story from before the beginning until after the end is the life that is in him. And now his present condition is living, not just living, but living in exaltation. Paul wrote to the Philippians and said that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So listen, guys, here's part of what I want to say. And I'll have several themes today as I kind of introduce the next few months of teaching here at the Life Christian Church. But here's part of what I want to say. I don't want us to look at Jesus and say, poor Jesus. 
You understand? And a lot of people without meaning to, the image they have in their mind of Jesus is a sad image that represents a few hours, essential and necessary, but a few hours of eternal reality. So we don't look at poor Jesus and say, it's too bad, it's so sad, what happened to Jesus? Now there's a part of that Don't misunderstand me, but I'm talking about emphasis now. Instead, when we think of Jesus, we think, wow, he lives forevermore, exalted in heaven, and everything in heaven on earth bows before him. I might get a little fired up today. I have a live audience. I've been studying for four or five weeks. I feel in great shape. And uh, I'm sorry to all you folks online that I'm, if you feel like I'm yelling at you, I don't mean to be, it's just. <clears throat> now I don't intend what I'm saying so far and what I will say to be in a, some abstract theological teachings. Over the next several weeks, I wanna help all of us understand why it matters that we focus on his life and the idea that he lives now in exaltation and why his present life offers incredible possibilities for our lives now and forever. So let's start like this. Jesus is in the position he is in. This ever-living exaltation. And we have incredible potential now because of the power of an indestructible life. All right? I became fascinated with this concept several months ago when I read this verse from the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews 7:16 says, "Jesus has become a priest." In other words, I'm going to make it simple. I'm not going to exegete this verse. I'm going to use it to make a larger point. Jesus is in the position he is in, if you please not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's the New International Version, the most common version read today. He is in the position he is, not because, and the writer of Hebrews here is talking about how Jesus was made a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and you can be glad I'm not going to talk about Melchizedek because you'll fall off your couch at home. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm just going to say this. Jesus is in the position he is in because of the power of an indestructible life. The New King James Version says, according to the power of an endless life. The message translation says, by the sheer force of resurrection life. So again, the reason that Jesus is in the position he is in is because he proved to be indestructible. Indestructibility was no surprise to him, of course. He knew that he could die for the sins of the world, which he came to do and had to do, but that he would not stay dead. Here are a couple examples. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said at one, on one occasion, I lay down my life only to take it up again. I love it. It almost sounds like he's swaggering a little bit. I'm going to lay down my life, but I'm going to take it up again. No one takes it from me. 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. It's as if he's saying, though surely with better grammar in the language he spoke, ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. Every time they sing that, I have two reactions. One is, wow, and the other is, could you get isn't in there somehow instead of ain't? But nonetheless, Jesus said, I lay my life down, but I, I'll take it up again. Another place where he refers to this is when he talked, when he was standing outside the massive temple in Jerusalem, and he said to a group of Jewish leaders standing around him, religious leaders, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see the picture on the screen of those huge stones. That, that, this is actually now the Temple Mount. This is the western wall of, of the temple in Jerusalem. We were there just a few days ago. Uh, well, not a few days ago, a few months ago. It seems like a lifetime ago. And we saw these huge stones that are laying there from when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Those rocks are still, you see, they're massive rocks. Well, you, imagine Jesus, what folks must have thought about him when he stood there and looked at the temple and said tear it down I'll raise it up again in three days but he wasn't talking about the temple he was talking about himself he was saying if you please I am indestructible and I might be dead for three days but ain't no grave <laughs> gonna Hold my body down. Now for the Jews in that story, having the temple torn down was the worst thing they can imagine. For most of us, having our bodies destroyed is the worst thing that we can imagine. But know this, know this, and I'm going to hammer away at this in coming weeks. Even if the worst thing that can happen happens to you, it will not ultimately destroy you. Because of Jesus, you are indestructible. For us to have an indestructible life means that ultimately it cannot be destroyed. Now you might say, and those of you sitting down in the conference center auditorium uh, who I spent some time with this morning, and as you're watching me on the screen, you might say, well, it's interesting to think about Jesus like this, but what does it have to do with me? And my answer is, and it'll take me a while, I think probably to help us really get this in us. I've been thinking about this a long time. It'll probably take me a few weeks if you'll hang in here with me. But my answer is, what does this have to do with me is everything. Okay? See, see, when we believe in Jesus, we receive His life. And when we have His life, we literally, of course, have in us the same power that made Him indestructible. Paul wrote to the Romans and said, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Therefore, 
We must know that even if the very worst thing happens to us, our life will not be destroyed. Even when our lives are laid down, they will be picked up again. Even when the temple of our body is torn down, it will be put back together. The same power that raised Jesus will raise you. And then you might say, understandably, it's, it's wonderful to know that I'll have eternal life, but what about now? Well, you have indestructible life in you now. This reality should affect every part of our lives now. You have the life of the life, the life of the resurrected Jesus in you. It's like... I read about someone who had a, a relationship with a very mature Christian who'd, you know, been through a lot in life and learned to trust God essentially. And as this gentleman got older, when, when, when he, when great challenge would come against him, he would walk out on his back porch, close the door, look out at a yard that faced nothing, and he'd shout, let her rip! Let her rip! In other words, I've lived long enough and know Jesus well enough and understand who he is and who he is in me enough that whatever it is that comes against me, well, I just know that ultimately I am indestructible. Even the worst thing that could happen, my body being torn apart, ultimately my body will be put back together again. So whatever challenge it is I'm facing at this moment, I have to have this understanding in my mind, the same spirit that ultimately will put my body back together has the power right now to put my life back together if my life needs that. So let her rip. See, some of us, instead of cowering in the corner during this season that's so challenging in our world and our lives, need to develop an attitude that's a little bit like, I lay my life down, I take it up again. Tear down this body, it's going to be put back together again. Whatever I face, the Spirit of Jesus that is the life of the universe lives in me. And somehow, though I may not know how right now, I know that I'm not only going to get through it, but I'm going to get through it on the other side better than ever. Let her rip! Man, I'm yelling a lot today. I'm sorry, guys, sitting here on the front row. I'm not that, actually, I'm not, I'm not that sorry. Let me be honest. So, we must extrapolate. I had somebody on my team this week say that I have to use extrapolate in every sermon. I didn't realize I used it that much, but anyway, we must always extrapolate from before the beginning of time and extrapolate back, pardon me, we must always extrapolate forward before the beginning of time and extrapolate back from the eternal future. This is a terribly written sentence. In order to, and I wrote it, in order to get a glimpse of what our lives through Jesus should be like now. In other words, when we think about this endless life that stretches forward and back both ways, when we think about that and we think about our lives now, to get a sense of what our lives should look like now, we have to grab what life was like in the beginning, how 
how God intended it, grab what life is like at the end, how it's going to be, and we have to assume that that reality is going to be showing up in the practicalities of our everyday life. You should taste the reality of indestructible. Listen, are you a believer in Jesus? Are you just like everybody else in your neighborhood moaning and groaning and talking about how bad everything in the world is? That's not who we are. We're people who live with a little bit of an attitude that comes from faith, that believes that by the grace of God, that regardless how bad things are, that Jesus lives in us, is at work in us. And we can, if we have to lay our job down, we can lay it down, but we're going to pick it up again. And, 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 and if we have to lay a dream down, we can lay it down, but we're going to pick it up again. And, 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 and we can look at the rubble of some broken thing in our lives and expect that God is going to put it back together again. And, and we can face the challenges of today, trying to homeschool children at work at the same time and try to figure out how to make living in a difficult economy and on and on and on and on and somehow or another we position ourselves where we live like we actually believe that Jesus lives in us in all of his endless indestructible power I think we especially need to be reminded of this during this season it's like the psalmist said in God I trust and am not afraid what can man do to me I'm going to say it again. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What are you facing in your life? What is your attitude about that thing? All right. I'm almost to my point. The life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus is the most important fact in history, and our lives should be shaped by it. Listen, I wish I had time today to do an apologetic on the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is true, the resurrection is the most important fact in history. And it should shape everything about our lives. It matters now. It matters tomorrow morning when we wake up and face life. It matters. If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in your body, it matters as to how we do life, not just for, a few, for the future. It matters now. And the fact is that the only plausible explanation for the resurrection is that it happened. When you, when, when you study it, even many times an atheist have really studied the evidences around the resurrection. They come to the conclusion the only way to explain this really is that it happened. There's no reason that these guys would have made it up. There was no slot in the Jewish mind for the resurrection of a Messiah uh, or the resurrection of one person in history. Again, not time to discuss it. The non-Jews, they thought resurrection was impossible and unwanted. They didn't even want, Greek philosophy didn't even want bodily resurrection. Their Platonic thinking saw the body as a lesser good. It wouldn't have even been good for them to say, this guy was resurrected from the dead and he's in his body. They wouldn't even have wanted it to happen. They thought bodies were bad. Maybe we'll get into that in the next few weeks too. But, but nonetheless, the, the only plausible explanation for the resurrection is that the people who wrote the New Testament and, and those who, be, who, who, who were the, the beginners of, of Christianity, they saw the resurrected Jesus and they experienced the life he had in himself 
in themselves. And so again and again, you'll find them, the writings of John, the writings of Peter, the writings of Paul, referring back to what they actually saw, what they actually experienced. And, um, and it's the only way one can, can explain the existence of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. Again, not a lot of time to talk about that, but once you understand, once you believe that the resurrection happened, then it really should affect everything about how you see life. And I think most of us on a day-to-day basis aren't thinking about it, but I want to ask us to think about it over the next several months as we start to talk about Jesus and how that the indestructible Jesus is the source of an indestructible life. As you know, this won't be a sermon for a day. This is going to be actually the teaching that we're going to dig into until uh, December, actually. And, um, and you know, our daily devotionals are going to be centered around this and particularly around a study of the New Testament letter to the Colossians. We're going to spend several months studying the four chapters that comprise this letter to the Colossians. I'm going to introduce it quickly today, and I'm going to try to make a point from it. And frankly, no surprise to anyone, I'm running out of time, so I need to go quickly. And you know, this built, this room has to be sanitized and We've got some Ghostbuster thing they use and do all that. So, so I don't want to get ghost busted, so I'm going to have to get, what time is it? All right, let me, a brief introduction to the letter to the Colossians, and then back to our theme today. Just briefly, the Apostle Paul, along with his ministry partner, Timothy, wrote this letter to the Colossians in the new, that we have in our New Testament. While, while Paul was in prison in Ephesus in the mid 50s AD. Colossae was one of the network of cities in Western Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, which included other cities mentioned in scriptures like Ephesus, which is about 150 miles away, and Laodicea. The church in Colossae had been started by a disciple of Paul named Epaphras. It appears that the primary reason that Paul wrote to the Colossians was that some strange heresy was being promoted in that young church by a set of mystics, probably Jewish mystics. These mystics were promoting certain spiritual philosophies and ascetic practices that they believed would lead people into ecstatic spiritual experiences. Or some scholars believe Paul may have just been speaking to the, in general terms, to the tendency that commonly arises among people who are hungry for spiritual power to assume extreme religious rules and practices. Regardless, the Apostle Paul tells these people in Colossae that they don't need to practice some extreme prescribed set of things like that to access spiritual power because, he said, you can access Jesus. And he writes, if you really understand who he is and what he's done and that he can be in you, then you will know that all you need for the life you want is Jesus. He is life itself and the cause of life outside of himself. So Paul said to the Colossians, focus on knowing Jesus. Now again, there's a lot that could be said today, but I want to focus just for a few minutes on a brief passage in Colossians chapter 1 that kind of sets, hopefully will connect some of what I've said and what we'll talk about in coming weeks. And uh, this section in Colossians is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 
It is understood by most all scholars to have been a hymn or maybe a poet, but poem, but probably one of the first hymns that had been written and that was sung in Christian churches. It's glorious. I encourage everyone to memorize it. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's written in two stanzas. Some believe it was a hymn that had already been written that Paul quotes in this. Some believe that Paul may have actually written the hymn. Nonetheless, here, here it is. This is what was important to people in the first century and important to people in Colossians. This, this is uh, Colossians 1.15. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him, let, let me, so you, just save a moment in a second. In the first stanza, he's going to talk about how Jesus existed before the beginning, or he was the firstborn over all creation, that he, he was life, he caused life, and he sustains life in the universe. In the second stanza, he's going to say, start, which starts with verse 18, I think, he's going to say that Jesus is also the beginning of the church through his resurrection. He started life in the beginning. He picked life back up in a unique way through his resurrection, and he began the new life, the new creation that we now have with God, okay? First stanza, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He didn't just cause life, he holds life together. Second stanza, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn, second time this has been used now, from among the dead, he's talking about the resurrection, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The New Living Translation says it like this, he is the beginning, supreme over all, who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. Again, I'll pick it up. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So again, first stanza, Jesus is mentioned as the cause of creation, of life in this universe as we know it now through being the firstborn image of God. Second stanza, he's mentioned as the cause of the life we now have with the Father. In other words, the life that began life in the beginning that holds the universe together is the life that he resurrected back into. And it's the life that he gives to those who believe in him. So not only does he cause life, but he holds the universe together. And not only does he cause new life, but he holds everything to do with that new life together, both the church and the people who are a part of the church. He started physical life, now he's begun this new life. I, I, I love the fact that he didn't just begin life, but that he also holds it together. There's a poem written by a guy named D.H. Lawrence, a, a very compact prose poem, called The Third Thing, which says, Water is H2O, 
two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, but there is also a third thing that makes it water, and no one knows what that is. Well, what Paul says is what that is, is Jesus Christ, who was life before the beginning, caused it, and he is that thing that no one can yet scientifically discover that holds all the disparate matter in the universe together. Well, he doesn't only do that, you know, for water. He does that for us, see. And so, so one, one way to think about this, and especially to think about it when I have a couple of hours to do a sermon, is to think about God, I've never thought about it this way, in terms of being the energy behind the universe and the energy that sustains the universe. Energy is the property that, when transferred to an object, powers the object to work. Well, Dallas Willard, again, the great philosopher, theologian, uh, Christian icon, he recently passed away. Uh, Willard wrote in his book, Life Without Lack, God is energy. God is energy in a form that is so incomprehensible to us because it is so great. Every time we look at a piece of matter, what we see is stuff that is not self-sufficient. Every piece of matter you can put your hand on or that you can even think about came from something else, and it is eventually going to become something else. That's what matter is. This is why Paul says that when you think clearly and carefully about the things that are created, you are led directly to God, a glorious, self-sustaining, eternal being. He is one who out of his mere nature pours forth life in infinite quantities that are incomprehensible, everlasting, unceasing, and will never be exhausted. But God, who Willard describes as energy, decided that through Jesus, the firstborn of creation, he would create matter and cause matter to have life, and that he would hold it together. This is the energy, if you please, that raised Jesus from the dead. And this is the energy that lives in our mortal bodies now. Okay? Now, this shows up in a couple of interesting ways in the New Testament. There's actually a Greek word that's used only three times. It's the word energia. It's E-N-E-R-G-E-I-A, trans, uh, transliterated, I guess, into from Greek into English. Energia, energy. And it shows up three times in three verses. The first is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. It's translated by the word English word power here, okay? He, it speaks about his inc incomparably great power for us who believe that power or that energy is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So just think about this. This energy, God, a person, but energy that caused the universe enters the body of Jesus in the grave 
And that great energy causes Jesus to be raised to new life. Another place, Colossians 2.12. Now it's going to talk about us. And we are taught in Colossians that baptism is a powerful place where we are buried in baptism and we are raised to new life. And it's not just a theoretical, abstract thing. It is a very real thing where this energy as Scripture is about to tell us, actually causes us to be raised to the new life that Jesus made possible through his resurrection. Are you, are you tracking with me maybe a little bit? Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the, and here's that word, energia, Again, now it's translated working. Through your faith in the working or energy of God who raised him from the dead. So we're told now that this energy that caused life shows up in the body of Jesus to cause resurrection. Now we're told that this energy of God that caused life that raised Jesus from the dead now shows up in us when we're buried in baptism. And then, this is very important, guys, and then we have faith in the working of God. In other words, when we actually believe this. The properties of water in baptism are just H2O. There's just water. It's not even holy water. I just disappointed some folks. It's just water. It comes from a hose. It's just water. What causes that to be a burial like the grave that Jesus was entombed in? The thing that causes that to happen is when you have faith in this energy of God to raise you up, all of a sudden you are raised to live in new life. In fact, ultimately, it is indestructible life. And the third time it's mentioned is in Colossians 1.29, where Paul says, to this end, he's just talking now about how he's working for the church, okay? He says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I know Christian and the team are nervous because I have two more pages in my grand closing story, but I'm going to finish right now, okay? I know we, we have time constraints, and you can send a band out. I had a great story to finish. Maybe I'll open next week with it, okay? I, I don't know, but, but, but I think I think this might be a good place to stop today and just consider this a, you know, a, 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 a week's pause where I pick this theme up again because I want to talk to you about why it matters. That the energy in the person of Jesus that caused the universe, that re-entered his life to cause new creation and to give us the power of an endless life is now working in us if we live in faith. See, the way we connect to this is by believing the gospel.
It's believing the life, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus now allows the working of God to begin to energize our lives in a way where indestructibility is not just some future thing that we believe is going to happen and somebody's going to talk about it at our funeral. But it's something that as we get up tomorrow and face the incredible challenges of a world that seems to be so difficult and dark, that we instead are lights that are shining in the darkness because John 1 tells us that Jesus was the life and he was the light of life. The energy of Jesus should be lighting our lives up in a way that's radiating around us where in this difficult, dark world, we are the ones who are kind of... Ain't no grave going to hold my body down. Ain't no having to homeschool my kids and figure out how to go to work and face all this craziness. It's driving me nuts. But you know what? I can lay down my life and I can pick it up again. But wait a second. Look at all this mess around here and look at the chat look at the way this has messed up your life plan and your strategic goals and look at all this rubble well you can tear this temple down but in three days see the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead really is at work in you and you can choose to believe that or not and if you believe it you will experience that power in your life I've been looking forward to saying this for a long time. Would you stand with me? Thank you for being a great crowd today, guys.